We're worried about looking vulnerable when they need us to be strong. What they need us to be is ourselves. From the Jewish Teen Funders Network, this is Outside the Sedaka Box, the Jewish teen engagement and philanthropy education podcast. I am your host, Danielle Siegel. Each episode, we will have a conversation with an amazing guest who will share their unique stories and help us explore the broader world of Jewish teen engagement and philanthropy education. I'm delighted to introduce our guest for today's episode. Lowell Isaacs has a lifelong passion for experiential Jewish education. He is currently the Director of Youth Philanthropy at the Jewish Community Federation and Endowment Fund, overseeing the Jewish Teen Foundations. Prior to his current position, Lowell held several leadership positions, including the Director of New Initiatives at URJ Camp Newman, the Director of Youth First Programs at Jewish Family and Children's Services, and the Program Director at the Center of Jewish Living and Learning at the Jewish Federation of the East Bay. Thank you for joining us today, Lowell. Thank you so much for having me. What got you into this line of work to begin with? It was definitely not a direct route. Um, I was not one of these young people in college that were laser focused, that knew exactly what I wanted to do after my studies were over. So I, I ended up with a degree in interdisciplinary studies, focusing on cultural anthropology, philosophy, and religious studies, but really graduated with no focus professionally. What I did know is that the most formative experience in my life up to that point was my experience in a Jewish experiential teen program when I was in high school. So the first thing I did upon graduating and moving back home to California was um, sought out an opportunity to help with that youth program but that benefited me so much. And um, that started what is now nearly a 20 year journey into Jewish teen experiential education. It was immediate, the immediate reaction for me when I was out of school and ready to work was, I want to go back and help and provide the opportunity to teens that I was provided. What was that formative experience that you had? What was the program that you had when you were a teen that had this amazing effect on you and is maybe one of the reasons why we're so lucky to have you in our field? The name of the program was Contra Costa Midrashah, and it was one of a collective of small um, 501c3s, um, midrashah programs in the East Bay area of the San Francisco Bay area. There were, at the time, four different midrashah campuses that ran independent once-a-week schools, and it was by far the highlight of my high school experience. The really only place I felt safe, comfortable. It was where I developed my own identity, where I felt like I had control over developing my own identity. I felt like I was issued a personality and an identity at my public school. So through that program is where I really figured out who, not necessarily I was, but who I thought I wanted to be. Um, and it was all done through a, a Jewish lens. And um, definitely is where the birth of my Jewish pride came from, for sure. Having been so intrinsically involved in running and directing a Jewish teen philanthropy program, the fact that it is through the lens of 
um, philanthropy and giving and Jewish giving. Um, has that changed your perspective at all? Absolutely. Uh, 100%. In fact, um, I, I would be skeptical of someone that, that said, in, in, whether it's in philanthropy or not, I would be skeptical of anyone that said that working with teens, especially in the Jewish context, does not change the way they look at everything. And I would say it's, it's obvious to me that my perspective on Judaism through the lens of these young people changes regularly. The rate of change in teen culture is so fast that perspectives can change within a single academic year. Yeah. And, um, and there's actually a case to be made with, with experiential education, especially when it comes to immersion. So trips and retreat weekends and whatnot, that perspectives can change from day to day. I think one of the, the most important things we can offer these young people is the opportunity to change um, and then change again and then change again <laughs> um, and, and, and create a container where it's encouraged. Um, and specifically when it comes to philanthropy, this is an absolutely fascinating time to be doing philanthropy work with young people. I think in a world where, where teens have um, begun to see adults as, in some ways, a barrier to progress. And we saw this with gun control movement and the anti-gun violence movement. This isn't, this isn't teens wanting to help contribute to an existing movement that's working. These are teens looking at themselves and saying, I think we're on our own here because adults seem ineffective. And we've left it to them too long to solve problems. And we have to do it ourselves. This is a, a tremendous shift. You know, when I started working with teens over 20 years ago, we all, the goal was always that for them to see adults as partners in change. The way they look at us now as barriers to change and progress is absolutely fascinating. And I think just the most fertile soil for experiential education I've witnessed. And so to be doing philanthropy work right now during this enormous shift in teen culture, it feels like you're living and working at an absolute ignition point. And that being said, it's also, it's challenging all of our conceptions about how we do this work. And what worked in the past may still work now, but it, we should be questioning it. We should be questioning everything we're doing all the time. Obviously, that's the nature of the work, but especially with philanthropy and civic engagement work right now with teens, if we don't listen to what they're saying, and if we don't react to what they're putting out into this world and their anger and their frustration and their exhaustion with us, um, then the boat's going to move on without us. And they, you may see teens creating things that are um, outside of the adult world, created by themselves, for themselves, um, and move on past us, which they've done in other parts of their lives. What we don't want it to do is to leak into the education world in which they feel like nothing we're offering is of value and we're not in this for real. You describing adults as being this barrier, it sounds so dystopian. I feel so sad for the teenage generation that they lost their faith in adults. And when I was growing up, yes, the adults were always seen as partners. And if you want to get stuff done, you go to an adult. If you're being bullied at school, what are you told to do? You go and report it to an adult. And the way that you're describing it and saying that they've 
they've basically said, they're not going to help us. We're going to do it ourselves. I'm so sorry that we put them in this position in the first place, but I'm so glad and um, really proud that they are making a difference and doing things that the adults should have done years ago. And some of that is also to having really amazing mentors like yourself who can encourage the teens and who offer those experiential settings. And I think that is the beauty of experiential education is you have this safe contained space to experiment and think and feel, um, and that can spill over into the, the outside world as well. It's, in my opinion, this is a real come to your favorite deity moment for, for Jewish education. We, we have to be, we have to be brave here. And we have to be brave enough to A, admit fault to our students. We have to be, be brave enough to come to them and say, you tell us where you want and need to go. And then I can use my expertise and my knowledge to help you get there. We have to be okay with letting go of the curated educational experience. It's terrifying. But we've asked trust from them for so long. I think the days of well, you trust your teacher first, and then we'll get there. Have to be over. We have to, uh, we have to step up first and say, listen, we know you're frustrated. We really do still have a lot to offer, but we promise that we're not going to, to push you through this or make sure you go through it our way. Help us be real partners in this. We're okay with not having control of all your experiences. We're okay with whatever outcome you get to, even if it feels uncomfortable for us. This is terrifying stuff, but it's also, <laughs> it really is. If you're not scared by this, you're not thinking enough about it. What's the point of being a person of faith if you can't have a little faith? We're, in, we're not in experiential education here. We're in experiential Jewish education. There's a reason why we're doing this in this setting with this lens, is we're people of faith. Change and adaptation and moving from pl away from places of comfort into places of fear and the unknown is what we do as Jews. I think that's cool. I think it's exciting and I want to be on this trip right now. So I have had the pleasure of working with you for the last year or two and something that I didn't know until you brought it to my attention um, is that you have a speech impediment. I am so inspired by you and your journey and your story surrounding this. I would just love to hear um, a little bit more um, about this, this huge piece of your life because I think you are inspirational. <laughs> I will put that out there. <laughs> I, I never know how to react to that because so you never want to say, absolutely, I agree, I am inspirational. But um, you are, you are, you can say it, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, the story, the story goes that um, I had a prenatal stroke and um, have a lesion on my brain, um, which affects my speech. So I was born with a, a very, very severe uh, speech impediment and was essentially non-communicative, could not speak. To my parents' credit, <laughs> um, when told they should um, teach me sign language and start teaching me alternative ways of communication, uh, they would not accept it and uh, started me um, 
in a very uh, intensive speech therapy. Um, and it was really hard. It's hard not to be able to talk and it's hard to communicate with your family and interact with the world without being able to verbally communicate. Especially when I was so young, I wasn't able to, to, to write yet either. So it was, I was really limited. I wasn't in a situation where I could have people in my life that didn't know I stuttered until probably high school is where the first, the first time I really started sensing that, that there are actually people that I met that don't know that I have a speech impediment. And because of the nature of my speech impediment, because it's uh, brain related, um, it's not going to go away. It's a, a daily, hourly, you know, by the minute process. So essentially I have a process where I can feel myself um, about to stutter two to three words before I do it. So each time I feel that coming, I have three choices to make. I can do the exercises I've been taught my whole life and say the word and not stutter. I can think of an alternate word with the same meaning that I will not stutter on, or I can stutter. Um, and I make that decision ballpark, definitely a few hundred times a day, depending on if it's a day when I'm in a lot of meetings or I'm teaching or giving a presentation, it can be maybe up to 900 times a day. Um, and uh, it doesn't come with a day off, <laughs> especially um, when my kids were really young and they were learning to speak at home. Um, what I didn't want them to do is to mimic my stutter, um, even though they didn't have it. Um, they would mimic it because that's how you learn speech is by listening to other people's speech. I think as I get older, there are, I could definitely feel the majority of the exhaustion I feel after a day of speaking, especially public speaking, comes from um, the process of doing these exercise, this exercise all day long. And um, so it, it, it's been an invisible disability my whole life, and it's actually more invisible now than it's ever been. Um, so in honor of that, on my 40th birthday, which wasn't too long ago, I got a tattoo on my right forearm. Um, which is the sound wave of a stutter. Um, and it was really my way of um, finally, after 40 years, um, taking power back from the disability and owning it. So people wouldn't know I stutter anymore by listening to me. But now I carry this tattoo around in a very visible place and um, get asked about it every single day of my life. And I now get to tell the story on my terms. And it's been incredibly empowering. And, and then, you know, one of the things that I felt like I've excelled in in my career is I teach through myself. Being a, a Jewish educator and someone um, with, a, with a role in the Jewish community who has a tattoo and a visible one um, is a great educational opportunity and has started some really incredible conversations, both with parents and young people but also the ability to teach about invisible disability through my own story. And um, every time I do it, I own it and I get a little more power from it back, but also the reaction from young people um, and their willingness to, um, to after they hear my story say, okay, I think I'm ready to share my story as well. Um, in creating a space for that to happen where I sort of step out first and allow the teens to join me there. So it's, 
it's been an incredibly difficult journey and um, no one knows better than my family who have witnessed it from the beginning um, and a few friends that have been there from, from early years. But, um, you know, I, in some ways I feel really grateful that I don't remember some of the hardest times of this journey. I was really young, um, that my experience with it was much later down the road. But, um, but I, I'm grateful for it every day. And I think it's, it's made me who I am and it's made me a better, a better educator. It's made me a better parent. I think it's made me a better supervisor. It's, it, there's no part of my life that it hasn't had a significant effect on. So. Um, it's, it sounds like you're immensely proud of the journey that you went through and pride in your invisible disability because you've made, you made it visible by having that tattoo. What would be your advice to other professionals who maybe also have an invisible disability or a disability that people don't immediately recognize or don't understand? You know, I would say that as much as you can teach with and through your disability, it's of great benefit to your learner. But that being said, I think it's imperative that you realize that you need to be in a very particular headspace to teach through your disability. I think it's more than just being at peace with it or owning it. It's, it's next level. I think being at peace with your disability and taking pride in it and owning it is a really important, special place to be. And it's really, really, really hard to get there. I think to be able to take a step further into teaching through it um, is something a little different. Um, it's more than just that sense of peace and pride, which can't be underestimated. It is incredible for for all those seeking it and for all those who have achieved it. It is incredible. You deserve all the credit in the world. And, but to be at a, a certain level of comfort and vulnerability, because essentially what you're doing is, you know, for lack of a better term, you're reopening the wound and welcome everyone back in every time and talking about not only your successes with your disabilities, but the, the, the hardest times, because that's where, that's where the, your learners are gonna meet you. Um, they need, if they're gonna hear it, they don't wanna hear a glossed over Hollywood version of your story in which you, know, you have one bummer night where someone says something to you and the next day you wake up and you put on your bold clothes and you do your hair and, you're, you, know, <laughs> and you step out and you're like, now I'm me. Um, your learners, in order to share this experience with you and connect to it in a meaningful way, um, need to hear the hard parts. And reliving that over and over and not creating a really curated, polished version of that is really hard. So my advice would be, once you're in that really, really healthy, good place of peace, um, then start exploring teaching through it. Oh, then and only then start exploring teaching through it. And also you have permission to um, try it and not like it. It is absolutely not for everyone. And there is zero failure related to that. I think specifically in our world, you know, especially in our Jewish education world, teens are so hungry for genuine experiences, you know? And um, when they opt into time with us, whether it's in philanthropy work or civic engagement or leadership or what have you, when they opt into engaging with us, they want all of you, right? 
They want an authentic experience where they can not just be their authentic selves, which we've always aimed for, but they can witness adults being authentic. Oftentimes, as adults, we're so scared to be ourselves in front of young people because we're worried that we, what we'll say, or we're worried about looking vulnerable when they need us to be strong. What they need us to be is ourselves. We all know this. Teens have the nature's most highly sensitive BS detector, right? So um, once they see or perceive that they're not getting something genuine with you, it could potentially invalidate everything you've taught them, even if you've taught them incredible stuff. So the onus is really on us to be as genuine and as consistent as possible. And when we do that, we can get into the work of growing healthy, strong, powerful Jewish people, which is the work we're all in. We want to see these young people step out into the world and not just be strong and proud Jews in their Jewish community. We want to see them step into their secular world, wherever they go professionally or wherever they do with their lives and time, and feel like the light and power they bring to every situation and the, the beauty they bring to every situation is because of their, of their Jewish identity. So let their Jewish identity shine in every situation they're in. Our, our, our charge as Jews has always been to be use our community to learn, to get strong, and then to bring that into this world um, and be leaders and be change makers. most common uh, misconceptions about your job or your role within that job? <laughs> misconceptions, there, there may be more of those than, um, than I could even list for you. I think a lot of people, when they think about working with teens, um, not in the school setting, but in the um, sort of after-school extracurricular setting, assume that, that it's, it's really a very specific, very glorified babysitting job. People's first reaction to telling them what I do is, oh, that sounds fun. Or so you just hang out with the kids or you just play games at camp. Yeah, it's a little bit more nuanced <laughs> than that. Um, you know, it's no one wants to hear about the six hours you spend on a one hour lesson plan because you're agonizing over like, what about this text? And is this too leading? And have we if, if I bring them this far in this direction, could we actually have a conversation about this? Or um, do we have enough time to, to bring up this issue and spark? And we, ag we all do this. We agonize over these lesson plans because we know the hour we have with them or the four hours we have with them is such a gift. And it's precious time. And there's six, especially now, there's six, eight, ten other places they can be. So if they're gifting you with their time, you want to make sure you give them something back that is real and meaningful. And that's the part of the job and part of the work that it's really hard to explain to people and translate. The dynamic, fluid, exciting nature of this work is so hard to translate to those out of the world. They and need to be a fly on the wall <laughs> as you're doing it so that they can really understand like what exactly. it is. Which is problematic in itself because I think we've all had observers in the room that really mess up what we're trying to do. And it's, it, as soon as you, you know, it's, I'm not a scientist. I don't claim to be a scientist, but I think I know that when you add an external factor to an experiment, you have to consider that. 
I've had many rooms where I work with teens where the momentum is so exciting and you talk about it with colleagues. They're like, I'd love to be there and see it. And they walk in and the day is such a dud because you add one more external factor and either it breaks the trust in the room or it messes up the spiritual pH balance of the room. Even the draw of bringing in guest speakers, those, those experiences have to be educationally framed so well before and after. I think that that applies to a lot of people who do similar work to this because often bringing in guest speakers is part of the program and it is such a value add when it is done correctly. I love your phrase of the spiritual pH balance. Um, I'm absolutely going to steal that. But I think you um, address a really important point about dynamics in the room. And sometimes there is just a certain um, a feeling, a certain magic that it's hard as an external person to really understand that and really view that. This, this job is really hard. Experiential Jewish education and immersive Jewish education is really difficult. I've asked you a lot about kind of your, your role and your work and who you are. Um, what do you do when you're not working? What are your hobbies? My, my family, my kids, my wife, my, my sister, my parents, they're my favorite people in the world. And um, spending time with them, um, whether we're enjoying each other or um, whether we're arguing or debating, um, time with them fills the soul um, for sure. Outside of that, on a personal level, I started painting about almost three years ago, and it's definitely been a life-altering experience. I have no innate artistic talent at all, um, but I started painting sort of as a therapeutic practice, and it's um, become an incredible transformative experience for me. So we're going to play a little game. <laughs> You didn't know you were going to do this bit. We're going to play a I little game. I should have assumed. Game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the game is called On the Money. We are going to be redesigning the dollar bill. And you have to decide out of a choice of two different people, which one you are going to put on the dollar bill and why. Oh, boy. Okay. All right. Are you ready for your first pairing? Ready or not. Okay. Would you rather have on the dollar bill Superman or Batman? Mm, well, Batman, he's a person, not an alien. All right, would you rather put on the dollar bill Barbara Streisand or Bette Midler? Mm, boy, that's tough. <laughs> I'd have to say, and my, my father would be really upset with me for choosing this, but I'd have to say Bette Midler. Oh, why? She fights the good fight just like Babs. Um, but she does it with a little more humor and a little less finger-wagging. Mm, okay. And last one, two characters from, um, from Genesis. Joseph or Noah? Mm, definitely Joseph. Mm, why do you pick Joseph? I, I love winter clothing, and he had the greatest coat of all time so <laughs> <laughs> and that qualifies him to be on the dollar bill <laughs> in my world yeah you're asking one man's opinion absolutely <laughs> amazing i love it thank you lol so much for chatting today and for talking about all the wonderful uh, topics that we covered really appreciate um you joining us
My absolute pleasure. And um, thank you for the opportunity. I'm really humbled and honored anytime I'm asked to share. Thank you for being such an excellent guest. And uh, before we sign off, um, I just want to remind everyone to please subscribe to our podcast. Please keep listening to us wherever you like listening to your podcasts. Also a little plug for the Jewish Funders Network podcast called What Gives. That is also available um, wherever you like listening to your podcasts. Big thank you again to Lol. You're very welcome. And thank you to everyone at the Jewish Teen Funders Network. You have an incredible team there, brilliant educators and Jewish professionals. And it's, it's always an honor and a pleasure to work with you all. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you everyone for listening and we will see you next time. Outside the Sadaka Box is produced by the Jewish Teen Funders Network, the central resource for the network of Jewish teen philanthropy programs in North America and internationally. To find out more, visit our website at jtfn.org. Thank you for listening and look out for our next episode coming soon. Don't forget to subscribe. Until then, bye friends.